Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. I pray that you would change our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would challenge us, that you would grow us up today, that we would fall more deeply in love with you because of all that you've done for us. And I pray that we would learn from Solomon's wisdom, that we would embrace it and not run from it, that we would see your wisdom in contrast to what the world often pitches to us as wisdom. Make us wise, I pray, and give us faith to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We've been in Ecclesiastes. If you are new, we've been moving through this series where King Solomon basically goes on a sin expedition to find out how he can derive as much pleasure as possible from life. He did everything that our culture tells us will give us happiness and fulfillment. He threw himself into money, and he amassed more money than any of us will ever hope to touch in our lifetime. He threw himself into relationships. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines that we know about. Not only that, he built houses for almost all of his wives. Talk about a mortgage bill. He built a new temple for God. He had life in ways that we could never imagine. He threw parties for people that went beyond any party that we could possibly throw. He didn't just have a few bottles of wine or a wine cellar. He wiped out vineyards day after day, week after week, month after month for these parties. He partied like I want to party. He, he put whole cows on spigots and just turned them. Didn't even take the skin off. We're just going to crisp this skin up, take it right off. I remember the first time that I uh, took my wife to one of my Filipino family gathering events. I forgot to prep her as to what happens. And, um, and I, I've shared this story before, uh, but it was so funny because you, you don't think to prep people who are unfamiliar with your culture. And in the Philippines, um, we have pig that we love to eat. And it's not just like bacon, although I am a fan of bacon. It's the whole inch of piggy, okay? And it's ears, face, and all. And we have this thing where as soon as grandma or grandpa said grace, all of the cousins my age, we charge for the face of this pig because all the crispy bits are there, the ears and the cheeks. So we charge it, right? But, but when you're on like a third date with your very, very Caucasian wife, or soon-to-be wife, or wife gonna, going to be in the future. So I'm there, and as I'm like tearing into this lechon cheek, I turn around with like pig grease coming down my mouth, and my wife is mortified. Why are there a dozen people ripping apart a pig's face? And then she later had it and realized that's the best part. Now, th this is like small-time party. It wasn't one pig. It wasn't one animal. It was dozens, hundreds of animals. Party after party after party, and Solomon now is old. And he's telling us some things. Now, who here is just so excited to turn on the news and watch politics every, every day? Anybody? Anybody wake up, they're like, the joy of my life. Ooh, I told you I was going to yell this sermon. I don't need a microphone. If you, you can turn me all the way down. I'll Charles Spurgeon this sermon. This is, this is something that Solomon is going to speak into in the opening part of this passage. After he's partied and he's tired and he's old, he says, I've got some wisdom about living with unjust rulers and kings. Verse 1, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence, nor take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases, for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? 
Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's troubles lie heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? So, so here's what Solomon's saying. And now this is different for us because most of us have not lived under a king. I know some of us are, are from other countries. You may have lived under a queen. Um, but as far as I know, there's no one in here that's lived under a king, and especially a king in this time. And what we have to remember is what kings were all about in the time of Solomon. Solomon was very close to the history. He was the third king in the line. So what you have in the beginning was God and his people. First, it was just two naked people and a God running around a garden eating mangoes. Things went bad. And then God had more people. And he had Abraham and said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to make a huge people that number more than the stars in the sky. And then they got into slavery. And then Moses took them out with the bow staff. And then they went into a land and God said, I am your king and I'm going to appoint judges because you don't need an earthly king. I am your king. And these people will be my representatives on the ground. But the people didn't want to be their own people. They didn't want to be unique. So they said, God, we don't want judges. We want a king like the rest of the people around us. And God said, it's a bad idea. And they said, no, no, we really want a king. Give us a king so we could be like all of our neighbors. And God said, it's a really, really bad idea. But if you want it, here you go. And he gave them a king. That king's name was Saul. Saul stood a head taller than everyone else. He was extremely powerful. He was a warrior. He was attractive, a lot like me, tall, warrior-like, and attractive. But then things went bad for Saul. Saul was anointed by God. And when people were anointed by God, nobody wanted to mess with that. Because they had seen what happens when you mess with what God had anointed. Because they had seen what happens when they knew that the Ark of the Covenant was anointed. And when it was falling off of its little carrying case one day and a priest touched it, he was vaporized. Because that was anointed. And the king was anointed. But then one day, Saul turned to evil, turned his heart from God. So David anointed another young man. We all know him as King David. And, and when we get caught up in Bible stories, sometimes I think we forget the gravity of these things and the reality and the humor in them. Because David was like the forgotten son. When the prophet went up and said, okay, God sent me here because one of your sons is going to be the king, the dad naturally brought out all of his Olympian warrior-looking children. And one by one, God said, nope, not big guy. Nope, that's big and dumb. Nope, that's medium and fast. Nope, nope, nope. And gets all the way down. And then the prophet says, Jesse, do you have any more kids? Because God said he's in your family. And this is how sad it is for King David. Jesse's like, oh, I do have one more kid. He plays the harp and he's out in the pasture playing with sheep. And he calls in David and God anoints King David, this hero of the faith who lied and murdered, this hero of the faith who walked onto his balcony, saw a woman bathing, wanted her so much, brought her to his house, impregnated her, and because he was such a hero of the faith, took her husband, tried to trick him into having sex with his wife. He wouldn't because he was a man of valor. So then King David, this man and hero of the faith, sent Uriah to the front line to die. So this is David. This is the kings that the Israelites wanted. They said, we want a king. And God said, it's going to go bad. And then after David, Solomon was the king. And at this point in his life, I think Solomon looks back and sees the train wreck that he was. The relationships failed. 
the, the governments that seeped into Israel, the wives that he married to take in more money and amass more power, but they bled into the culture and they took Solomon's heart from God. And here's what Solomon says to do with these rulers. He says, don't just try to stand up to them and fight them. Now, I know this is different nowadays. One of the things I love about our culture is that literally, this, this is not figuratively, if a government is corrupt, people have now used Twitter to overthrow a government. Now, whether or not you're like on Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram, you have to admit that that's a remarkable thing. When, when the Egyptian government was in turmoil and the people literally tweeted their way to a new government. Now, they didn't have that back then. If you went against King David or King Solomon, it was one word and you were gone. And Solomon wants you to know, look, in the midst of your culture, obey those who are in power above you. And this is hard. This is very difficult for many people right now. I'm so glad that the Olympics are here. If you missed the video, there's an Olympic music video. And it, for me, I sing it almost like a worship song, and it fires me up. If you want to look it up later, it's just Google Rise Olympic Song. And it was so powerful for me to be watching the Olympics with my son, Jackson. He's into them. I let him stay up till 11 o'clock last night, and I was getting all bleary-eyed, and Amy had long gone to bed, and that kid was zoned in. He's like, Daddy, I want to see the next medal. I want to see the next medal. I want gold. He's like, Gollum. Mm. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know for sure why he got all fired up. I, I think because I had shared with him some stories. At, at one of my old small groups, we had a guy in our small group who had won the decathlon in the 2008 Olympics. He was a gold medalist. In 2004, he was a silver medalist. And Jackson didn't understand it in the youth group, in the small group at the time. And I said, buddy, this guy in 2008 was what they call the greatest athlete in the world. But Jackson was four. He's like, give me some more pizza. But now that he's seven, he's like, wait, Mr. Brian was that guy? He was that fast? He could jump that high? So now Jackson, he's, he's asking me, Daddy, can I be an Olympian? Go for it, buddy. And he, and he said, well, I'm either going to be a gold medal winner for shooting or volleyball. And this came out of nowhere. I'm like, why shooting or volleyball? Because I'm tall and I can shoot things. <laughs> Sounds like a plan to me, buddy. I mean, he is in Florida now, so you don't know he's probably packing heat as a seven-year-old. Solomon, Solomon wants us to acknowledge that beyond all the things going on in the powers of this world, we are to live in a way that proclaims the love of God to others. We are not to be angry, subversive, divisive people. In case you haven't figured it out, you cannot legislate morality. You can't do it with your own children, and you can't do it with other people's children. Every time you try to legislate morality, it causes people to buck up against the law. That's what the Bible says the law does. You give them a law, and they just want to break it. Do you remember the first time your parents gave you a hard and fast law when you were in junior high or high school? Everything my mom said not to do was like a green light. Do not date this type of girl. Green light. Do not walk across this. Green light. Do not do that. Green light. Do not smoke this. Green. I was just like, every law, and that may not be you guys because you all flutter about with the Shekinah glory. This is just me and my struggles, my rebellion. But Solomon says, in the midst of all the laws and the rulers, just be wise. Don't try to necessarily buck them off. Do your due diligence as a follower of God and bring love and light and wisdom into 
the industries. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. It doesn't mean that we don't participate, but it, do, it means that when we do, we do so with a personality on us, with a character about us that is wise and kind, not one that's abrasive and tearing down. Romans 3 has a lot about, Romans 13 has a lot about this, obeying those who are putting authority over you. 1 Timothy 2 tells us to pray for those whom God has appointed. And lest we forget, in Daniel 2, it tells us that God is the one who sets up kings and tears kings down. You may think that, that the election is all predicated on who votes for who and how many popular votes each person gets, but it's not. I'm going to tell you the election is rigged and not by the DNC. Is that too soon? Sorry. The election is rigged by the God of the universe. He sets up the kings. He's not going to be fooled by a few ballots here and there. And I'm, you guys, I'm so pumped, sidebar, to be in Florida, because every year in California, like the votes all go the same way. Every year, every proposition you just know ahead of time. But in California, we would eagerly watch like Ohio and Florida and be like, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Why are those states so crazy? And now that I'm here, <laughs> I see it. Because if you just drive across the state, like, this place is crazy. Here's like a, a gun-toting southerner, and over here is this like blue-blooded Yankee. Like, do they even like each other? You guys do seem to like each other, which I love. Pray for our rulers. Pray for our candidates. Pray for both of them that they would both find the love of God, that they would both be transformed. Because I would be thrilled beyond the moon if I could see candidates, and I'm not going to tell you which ones I'm talking about, but if one of the candidates became a kind-hearted, grace-filled person whose words spoke life, and if the other candidate became a person of integrity and honesty who strove for the truth, I'm not telling you which candidate is who. Why are you guys laughing? A bunch of sinners in here. So here's what Solomon goes on to say. He's like, okay, rulers, check. Crooked rulers, crooked times, pursue wisdom and love and grace and mercy, knowing that they are instituted by a power above you. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit. Now, the, the spirit is a word in the Bible in the Old Testament and the New. It can be translated as spirit, as wind, or as breath. It's all the same word. So when you see God talking about God, the spirit, or the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, it's the word ruach, and it's also the word for breath. It's also the word for wind. And Solomon is using that wordplay saying, look, here's how low down on the totem pole of control you have. You cannot control the wind, aka the spirit of God. He's going to go where he wants and do what he wants. If you want an exercise in futility, send your kids out to catch leaves on windy days. It's one of my favorite parenting tactics. Hey, buddy, every bamboo leaf you get today, a quarter. And I send them out there in a gale force hurricane storm. Comes in with a half a leaf. I'm like, sorry, buddy, that's 12 and a half cents. You can't control the wind, nor can we control the power over the day of death. Some of us try. We've talked about this. Solomon threw himself into everything. And some of us, we worry about the external, the health, more than we worry about our internal character. This was a few weeks ago when Solomon said, be concerned with your name rather than your exterior appearance. Be concerned with your character rather than how much kale and oatmeal you can eat. Because no matter what happens, and I know some of you in here, you're like on the health train. You wake up in the morning, you have kale, oatmeal, breakfast, you bathe in essential oils, you take multivitamins intravenously, you steer away from all things that have any sort of pesticides. You're going to die. 
like either from all that crazy stuff because kale is an unnatural form of dirty lettuce or, or because <laughs> it's just inevitable. So you're going to die unhappy with the taste of earth upon your tongue and I'm going to die happy with a size 38-ish waist because I'll be sipping fine wines, eating filet on my deathbed. Okay, so you choose. We're going to get there, okay? We're going to get there. We can't control when we die, nor uh, there is no discharge from war. When, when these kings send us to war, we're at war. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Verse 9, Solomon says, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When a man had power over man to his hurt. So here's, here's what Solomon is getting at. When we leave men and women and we give them power, we will hurt each other. And we don't think that we will because in our minds, everyone in this room has labeled ourselves as the nice person. If I said, are you good? 99% of the people here will say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. But when you start giving people power and money, an opportunity, all of a sudden, you begin to see the dark side. All of a sudden, when there's the opportunity and the ability, our sins can come out. And, and we don't need to look at that as a negative thing. We shouldn't say, well, if power and ability and, and fame if, and money, if these things make my sins come out, I should probably just be poor and be a monk forever. That's up to you. If you want to do that, kudos to you. But if you are living in this country, it's very difficult. So here's what you do. As you amass wealth and power in this life and your sin rears its ugly head, learn to take a posture where you say, this is when the bad traits of my character come out. How can I bring the good news of Jesus to defeat that? Have you guys seen those black racer snakes? So these snakes, um, apparently they're everywhere in Florida. I've seen one in my front yard, and I tried to catch it. I could not catch that thing to save my life. It went into a bush, and it was a small bush about this big. And I was like reaching in there trying to find it, and I didn't find it. And someone told me yesterday, what you have to do is when it goes into a bush, you just step back because the, the racer, the black racers, they'll stick their head up out of the bush like a periscope and look around, and that's when you grab them. And if you're a southern boy, you skin them and eat them. No, I'm just kidding. So, so this is what happens. All of a sudden, you start getting power. All of a sudden, you start having opportunity. And the serpent within you sneaks out. Says, hey, how can I hurt somebody else? How can I lift myself up and lower someone else down? It looks for opportunity to strike. And if you're not ready for that, if you don't know that that's going to happen, it will eat your life alive. One other thing that Solomon says there in the end of verse 8, he talks about how wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. It is very easy to believe that a particular sin will free you from the current struggle of your life, whatever that is. We all have in our lives what I call miniature hells. They are these things that we want to escape, the bad moments. For some of us, it could be very identifiable. Some of you know off the top of your head, man, my job, that is my miniature hell. That is where I go, that I don't want to be, that I'm angry. Everything about this brings out the worst in me. And then we seek something to escape it. Some of you, it's a marriage. Some of you, it's a relationship. Some of you, it's a, a closet sin. Something that you've been doing. Some addiction that you're harboring. Now, now, here's what I want to say. No matter what it is, using sin to defeat sin never works. Using 
something that is evil to try to combat something that is broken in your life will never work. Here's an example. Um, this is an easy one. So anybody in here ever been anxious? Okay. If you're not raising your hand, you just lied. So now we've all covered the bases. We're sinning in here, okay? So anxiety is when we're not trusting in God to do what he's going to do and to be what he said he would be for us. So instead of being anxious, the Bible says, do not be anxious, but by prayer and supplication, make your requests made known to God. Anxiety can lead to depression. Anxiety can lead to bitterness. Anxiety can lead to anger. I promise you, my patience, if the wick is this long when I wake up, once anxiety hits, I mean, it's burnt down to the nub. It's ready to explode. It's a firecracker ready to pop off. Anxiety can lead to all sorts of sins. Now, here's what people do that I've seen in our culture to deal with anxiety. We try to simply medicate it with something that we can put in our mouth. And that could be anything from Ben and Jerry's Chubby Hubby to Jack Daniels to prescription medication. And I'm not against prescription medication. Just don't hear me say that. If, if you go to a doctor and they, they examine you and they say, this is what's going on, here's the imbalance, let's try this, I'm all for that. I am against, however, turning to whiskey to solve your problems or substitute beer, wine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because that never solves your problem. And if you don't believe me, believe Solomon, because he drank more than you'll drink. If you don't believe Solomon, I, I, I fear for you that you would try to mask it. And some of us are saying, well, okay, well, I'm not the whiskey beer drinking guy. I don't put Jack Daniels on my Cocoa Puffs. But man, Ryan, don't you touch my chubby hubby. You know how easy it is to turn to food in Christian culture? Because this is the sin that no pastor talks about. This is the, this is the one. You'll rarely hear a pastor get up and say, hey, um, turning to food as comfort is actually not what God wants for you to do. God doesn't want you when you're in the middle of anxiety-driven times, depression-driven times. He doesn't want you to go to Publix and get the two-for-one gelato and finish them. He wants you to turn to the Holy Spirit, who is the great comforter. And when you put it in that perspective, it's really funny because here on one hand, you've got the all-powerful creator of the universe, and he says, I am here to comfort you. I'm here to be in you, with you, for you. And then on this table, you've got two quarts of gelato. And you guys... Seven times out of ten, I'm halfway through a gelato before I even think about it. I'm like, oh, like I thought that this chocolate Italian goodness would free me from this. Because what happens is I get to the bottom of that bucket. There is no bottom to the Holy Spirit's comfort for you and for me. But we turn to these things to try to calibrate our life, to make sense of the bad things, to give us meaning and hope and purpose. But often the things we turn to lead us further down a train of sin. Now, that it's, it's really fascinating to me how we call the Bible heroes Bible heroes because I, I think that God wrote the Bible and had it recorded so that we would see that every, every person in the Bible was an absolute train wreck. And, and I think the Bible is written in such a way so that we see these real-life gritty stories so that we could say, I'm like that person. And, and in case you, you forget how this worked, We've all done this thing where we pursued our own way, and that's the ultimate sin, pursuing our own way to try and be God instead of letting God be God. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, do whatever you want. Eat everything you want, every fruit, every vegetable. It's all yours. You just run around. Just this one tree, you guys. One tree, 
What did I say about the law? You give someone one law, one law. Could you imagine 300 trees bearing the most perfect fruits, pineapples just popping up like daisies, and here you are going for the one tree. I want to be like you, God. Boom. Or you have Abraham. God says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make a great nation. There's going to be more descendants in your line than anything else, more than the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. You just wait, Abraham, because I'm going to have this child born through your wife, Sarah. And at first, it sounded like a good promise. Abraham's like, yeah, when he was in his 30s. And then all of a sudden, he's in his 40s. He's like, God, are you still there? 50s. God, are you still there? Because Sarah's ovaries are getting dusty. 60s, 70s. 80s, and God says, no, my promise is true, and God said, ah, and Abraham said, no, God, my wife is old now. Have you seen her? She's near in her 90s. She's no spring chicken. She's not even a winter hen. She's past winter. She's like winter is coming, and then it came and went. I can't have a kid with this woman. So he goes and sleeps with a slave girl and has a son, Ishmael, and God says, that wasn't the plan. Ishmael becomes another nation that we call Islam. And then God has this child of promise with Sarah, Isaac, who became the nation of Israel. Not only that, Abraham tried to pimp his wife out on multiple occasions. So Adam and Eve disobeyed. Abraham was pimping his wife out. Noah got drunk right after he got off the boat. So God's like, I'm looking for righteous people. Noah, I will save you from the flood. Noah gets off, grabs the sand and the bottle. King David, we've already gone over his story, Solomon, 700 wives, and some people ask me when we've been going through this series, hey, um, Solomon had like a bunch of wives and concubines, how, how come the Bible doesn't ever tell us that polygamy is bad? And I always remind people, it does, it does, you just have to read slowly, and not even too slowly, you go through the book of Genesis, and the Bible shows us that polygamy is very, very bad. And the reason I think we miss this as Westerners is because we're looking at the Bible like a textbook and we forget that it's a story. And if you look at every single person in the Bible who had multiple wives, it went really bad. It went really bad. Whether it was Isaac, whether it was Abraham having his slave girl and Sarah, or Isaac having his two wives and there was jealousy and anger and contention. I mean, I don't know about you guys and I don't know what your experience is in marriage, but one wife keeps me occupied and on my toes, right? I got an amen out of that one. Dude, your wife is totally not here right now. Otherwise, you'd never said that. <laughs> Somebody send this to Marcel. Okay. And, and it goes bad because there's lying and deception and backstabbing and jealousy. Solomon, people are like, well, look at Solomon at 700 wives. That must have been fun. Really? Really? Because I watched one episode of Sister Wives, that show where the Mormon polygamists happen. And that guy can't even keep four wives happy. That guy is one bad conversation away from a slit neck in the middle of the night. <laughs> Not 700 wives. Polygamy is, goes bad every time. Yet sometimes we think, oh, well, this will bring us happy. More sex, more alcohol, more whatever. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. So there was a wicked person, and wicked in this context is someone who is not turned to God, does not fear God, does not believe in God, does not trust God. And Solomon says, I saw wicked people going in and out. They'd, they'd do all their wickedness in the week, wouldn't care, go to 
Sabbath, check off the box, went to church, I'm safe and free. This is how a lot of people in the church today function. This is, uh, I remember, I'll never forget this story, and this girl, I used to manage a retail store. Uh, it's, it's Hollister. It's part of the Abercrombie and Fitch chain. Yes, I was that vain and ridiculous, uh, wearing ripped jeans. And I was managing the store. We had about 120 uh, part-time employees and a few full-time employees that I oversaw. And I remember this one girl because they, they would call me preacher, even though I didn't want to be a preacher anymore at that season of my life. And this one girl would just sin rampantly. She would do whatever she wanted. And then she would go to a church gathering on Sunday morning. And she'd come in on Sunday or Monday whenever I was working. She'd say, hey, preacher, I'm so glad that God died for all my sins. I'm like, I am glad that he died for all your sins too because I did this and this and this and this this week. But then I went to Sunday and I got it all wiped off. And this story repeated itself again and again and again. And I asked her, I said, hey, how many times have you like received Jesus? How many times has he come into your life and changed your perspective? And she said, well, he changes it every Sunday so that I can do what I want the rest of the week. I said, I, I don't think that's how this works. I mean, I've read a couple times in this book. Solomon said this is the injustice he saw. Wicked people doing wicked things, coming in and getting their time card stamped. Am I still getting into the good place? Yes, I am. Some people believe that it's a prayer that saves us. They believe that there's this thing we call the sinner's prayer. And if we say the sinner's prayer, then all of a sudden our ticket to heaven is secured forever. The only thing that secures your ticket forever is Jesus, is you in relationship with Jesus. The sinner's prayer is like this weird Harry Potter magic spell. And the church has put it out there enough times to where I think we started believing it. And it's not bad. It's a good prayer. It says, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Be my God and I will be your child. Be with me forever. Fill me with your spirit. I need you. That should be the prayer we pray every morning when we wake up. Not just one time to get our punch card to get on the heaven train. Because it's a relationship. And Solomon said, this wickedness I saw, it wasn't a relationship with God. It was people using God like a genie in a bottle. They did what they wanted and they acted like God. And then they would come in and get their time card punched for their sacrifice. And they would go about living their own way. And he said in the end of verse 10, this is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So Solomon says the reason people do this is because God's not coming back quick. So we get waylaid. We get distracted. Now, if you think about the fact that one day the king of the universe who owns all things is going to rend the heavens open and come in, and in that moment he's going to raise dead bodies from the ground. Everyone who's been cremated is going to come together like a sci-fi movie of being rebuilt. People who have recently died are going to bust out of their boxes. And those who are followers of Christ on the earth are going to fly up like Peter Pan to be with Jesus. Now, this is going to happen one day. What happens is, is it doesn't happen today. So then we lose a little bit of interest. doesn't happen tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, the worries of three days from now begin to take over our thought that one day Jesus is going to rip the sky open, blow that trumpet, and end all things. And we get distracted because we're down here like, oh, my unread email count is 980. And Jesus is like, I'm coming. Keep the light on. Be watchful. 
my mother-in-law used to run home every day from school because she was scared that the rapture was going to happen and she wasn't going to be with her mom. Like, that's how much thought that there was in this. And I don't know if it was a fear or whatever, but I'm totally getting my kids to do that. I'm going to tell them, like, hey, if your school bell rings, Jesus might come before you get home, so you hustle, boy. <laughs> I just want them showing up in tears. Did I make it? One day I'm going to do the joke where you put, like, pants crinkled down and shoes at the bottom. Come on. Come on. Does that really surprise you after all you've heard out of my mouth? Not seriously. No, but it's going to be funny. It'll be good Instagram. I'll probably get like 12 likes. <laughs> Going in and out of the holy place, doing what we want, living as, we are, as if we are gods. It's that whole phrase that people say, hey, why don't you come to church? Well, I don't want to go to church. Why not? All Christians are hypocrites. You just filled in that blank for me nicely. My, my response usually is, yes, they are. That's why we need you to come, because you are too. <laughs> because we all wear masks. We all put up fronts. If, if one of us were totally honest for one day only, I think we'd lose a lot of friendships. If one of us removed the filter from our mouths, divorce lawyers would be crushing it today. If one of us was totally honest with our children, we would stop saying that we love all of them equally all the time. I know you guys say that. I tell my kids all the time. I'm, I try to be honest. And my son Jackson, he's at the age where he's holding me to it. Because I've told him about some of the mythical uh, figurines that we have in our culture, and I've told him from the time he popped out of the womb, this person's not real, this person's not real, this person's not real, because I don't want him giving all of the love that I deserve to other creature, creatures and critters. And I don't want him to be confused when he says, well, I can't see Jesus and I can't see this person, ergo Jesus might not be real like this person's not real. So I've made it blatantly clear, but now he's holding me to it. He says, Daddy, you say you'll never lie to me. So he asks me these penetrating questions. Daddy, how are babies made? So I have a response, of course. Well, you see, son, when, I'm just kidding. I tell him, you're not old enough yet. I'm not going to lie to you, but I'll, I'll tell you the basics for what your age-appropriate level is. I think sometimes as Christians, we wear the mask so well that we don't even realize it's stuck to our face. That we can have the worst morning ever on the way here and act like everything is okay to everyone around us. That we can literally be on the brink of losing our, our marriage, our house, our teenage son, that we are on the brink of breaking down, having a nervous anxiety attack because our adult children have done this or that, that our job is hanging by a thread, and we come in here and we put on the mask. It's the happy, I'm a Christian on Sunday mask. And we wear it around so nicely. And it's easy to put on. And the, the sad thing is, is that if you put it on enough, what happens is your face underneath it forms to it so that even when you take it off at night, you still are trying to lie to yourself that everything's okay. Now, here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to get to the point where we can say, yes, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a mask wearer. But God sees through my mask and still loves me. And he gives us the grace to put our face up to heaven so that Jesus can reach down and pull that mask off. And we can begin the small, slow journey of being authentic people. So the question is, because I'm talking about all this sin, you know, Jack Daniels and eating too much Ben and Jerry's. So is there too much sin? Can I out-sin 
of my relationship with God. That's verse 12 for us. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times. How many times? A hundred times. How many times? Okay. And prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This is a, something that I, I'm very passionate about. You cannot out-sin God's love for you on the cross. This is why I'm passionate about it, because I hear the opposite message too often. I hear the message that, that dangles the puppet master of fear that says, if you do this sin, then God's love is going to be sucked out of your life. Then it's not going to go favorable for you, then God will stop being happy with you. When the Bible says something very different, the Bible says that when you come to Jesus, you are clothed with him. The, the Old Testament version of fear God is the New Testament version of repent and believe. And God wants us to know that no matter what goes on in your life, if you in the Old Testament fear God or in the New Testament have a lifestyle of turning from sin and believing in Jesus, turning from sin and believing in Jesus, then your life is clothed with Jesus. Then when God looks at you, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, because when he looks at you, he's seeing Jesus around you, in you, and all of about you. This is the reality of the Christian faith, that though you sin a hundred times, or though you sin seven times, 77 times, as Jesus said, the penalty for sin was paid for in full, and now we have a relationship with God. The Old Testament was the fear of God. God is king and priest and prophet, and we related to him in that way in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he's our father, our loving father. And he can be scary sometimes. I scare my children sometimes. I yell at my kids when they bolt into the street because I don't want them to get run over. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. I use my dad voice. Sometimes God uses his dad voice with me. It's not because he's angry with me. It's because I'm running into the spiritual street and there's cars blazing down trying to kill my life. It will go well for those who fear God. It will go well for us who believe and trust in him. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. Verse 14 that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. You guys ever wonder why this is what this passage says? Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, right? Have you guys seen this a little bit? Now, I know instantly the problem we just had is that we all think we're good people, and I know some of you. Good things do happen to bad people, and, and there, there's been some cases of that in my life recently. One of, the, one of our friends, a chapel family, shared uh, last week about his cancer that he's gotten. And man, Charles is one of the kindest, nicest, most joy-filled, happy, Jesus-loving guys that have ever existed in my sphere in Florida. The guy loves Jesus. And then he gets a, a cancer that's incurable by medical, modern medical science. Crazy. Like, he's so good. Why, Jesus. And then I meet some guy over here who's the offspring of, like, Jeffrey Dahmer and Rosie O'Donnell, and, and it's, it's just crazy, and all of a sudden they get rich, and they're famous, they have all the luxury, they're yachting with their partner. It's nuts. I mean, I don't know if that was a real child, but that'd be weird if it was. 
And we say, why does this happen, God? And Solomon says, this is vanity. The world is broken. It's off kilter. It's off shifted. It's not making sense. And this happens, but don't worry. Don't worry, because God will make all things right in the end. This is a fleeting moment that we live in. And if we see ourselves as good and others as bad, then we'll always wonder, why does this person get that and I get that? Here's the way, easiest way to end the game. Stop comparing yourself to others. It's, it's the easiest way to end a lot of stress in your life. Because if you walk out your front door and you don't care how nice this person's car or house or yard or job or wife or husband or kids are behaved, if you just say, I'm going to be me and God and my church family, we're going to bring good news and love and kindness and wisdom to the world around us, man, stress just starts to flutter off of you like butterflies in spring. It's an amazing feeling of freedom. And then lastly, Solomon tells us in verse 15, here's what he wants us to know. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Remember, this sermon series is called Rise Above because under the sun, it's a grim outlook. Under the sun, if you are not connected to God who has above the sun, beyond the sun, under the sun, Solomon says, hey, if you're here and you're not with God, just go eat and drink and be merry. Get your gelato, get your whiskey, get your wine, get your cocoa puffs, have your sex, do your relationships, get your fame, because it's all going to burn in the end. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of the things that I love is, is either, there's either or. We can either have joy and peace and satisfaction in a weird small measure for now, or we can come to, to Jesus and have it from now on. Now, I love the moments I've had with my wife. You know those special moments you have with your, your sweetheart, your honey boo? You hold their hand on the beach. Remember the first kiss was like electricity surging through the lips into your heart? And then it told your brain, this chick's going to marry you because she's relentless. Do you remember the first time you had a perfectly cooked steak and a wine that was paired with it by a sommelier? See how I did that? You can have that for now or from now on. You can say, God, I want to be in a relationship with you and experience what it's like to be freed from the pressures of this world and these mini self-salvation projects where I try to earn my way up to good standing or I try to get famous enough or approved enough by this work or this relationship. Or you can say, God, I recognize that I can't do it and I need you to bring me into relationship. I need Jesus. And when we do that, our vocabulary switches to for now to from now on. Because from now on means some of you I get to sit down with a thousand years from now. Let's not even go a thousand. Let's go 50 years from now. I, I'm planning on dying a little bit younger. I'm thinking like 70s-ish because tall guys don't last long. So after I die, if you're there before me, please say hello. Say, hey, I went to the chapel, you know, circa 2016. But if you die after me, then I'll say hello. Hey, I want you to come check out this guy that I met. I mean, he was a Hebrew guy, but he makes a killer Ethiopian latte. And if you don't think there's lattes in heaven, you need Jesus. And then we're going to go to this party because Isaiah 55 tells us that in heaven, there's fine meats and wines. And I know there's a different table for all of the other people that don't drink biblical wine. I think that's going to be the big cosmic joke, you know. I'm going to be at the Presbyterian table because those guys know how to throw down a bottle of wine. 
And then my father-in-law and my wife are going to be at the Baptist table wondering why Welch's tastes weird with a filet. I'll be like, hey, you sowed the seed on earth. That's what you get now, baby. I sowed my seed, you sowed yours. You made your bed sleep in it. What are you going to pursue? The joy for now or the joy from now on? The joy for now means you get to be God for this much time. And the joy from now on says, I cannot be God. I need God to be God. I need Jesus in my life. And that changes your trajectory from this day forward so that now we can become people who are driven to know God and be in relationship with him so that we can become people who make this life all about Jesus. The, the simplest version I could put of what the chapel is about is to bring the love of Jesus to every street that we live on so that we can begin lighting this candle so that we can invite people to come and know Jesus. Part of the reason we got rid of cafe is because we're streamlining service times so we can make more opportunity for, especially for growth in the kids' ministry area. Part of why we exist and why we do all of this is because we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the world because that's who Jesus came to save. Let me pray. I'll invite the worship team and Edwin to come on up. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray that you would give us a mind to live for life in a way that is from now on and not just for right now that you would give us a joy that is unshakable and a peace that, that surpasses all of the trials of our lives. God, I, I also pray for those in here who have, who have been living for right now, who have been acting as if they are God and you are not. I pray that you would give them a very real and sobering moment to step into a relationship with a loving Father, one where you keep your eyes on the horizon waiting for our return God, I'm so thankful that you grabbed a prodigal like me. I'm so thankful that you save sinners and that you save people who are entrenched in oppressive religion. Be our God and help us to live for the from now on. In Jesus' name, amen.